Fearless. 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 Fearless presence. I'm so excited to have with me today Alex Cusis. Alex is a life, health, and mindset coach, an influential thought leader, and a best-selling author. Her practice, Soul Fitness Coaching, empowers women around the world to prioritize their self-awareness, self-worth, and self-care so they can confidently rise to any challenge assigned to them in this lifetime with grace, grit, and gratitude. Alex walks her talk, her recent best-selling memoir, Truth Matters, Love Wins, recounts a time in her own life when she chose faith over fear in the face of false criminal accusations by using the same techniques she uses in her coaching. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited for all this. And it's been really fun. I've had such the fun of watching the lead up to Alex's book release because we share the same book coach, Sarah Cannell. And so it's just been really awesome to see it all come together. It's an exciting process, that's for sure. And it is nice to have uh, friends along the way bearing witness. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and your story is so... incredibly big false criminal accusations are you know are like not small stuff it's not the small stuff right right and and beyond even the accusations they did turn into criminal charges which did turn into a full criminal trial so it really was like the whole enchilada wow wow and i i love this quote that you have at the beginning of your prologue that says three things cannot be long hidden the sun, the moon, and the truth. That's exactly right. That was actually sent to me from a friend um, during the beginning of the whole legal debacle where she just said, I want you to hold on to this. You know, I knew from the beginning that I did have truth on my side and I knew that had to matter. And I wasn't, um, you know, and yet here I was sucked into this system that really didn't seem all that concerned about what was the truth. They just sort of, it's like they had a a protocol and they just followed it. If there were accusations made, then, you know, A, B, and C happens. And meanwhile, I was over here going, well, but can we talk about this for a second? Like, I, I actually have some information that I can share to show that this is an impossibility. And, and it, it, there was never that opportunity. And so a friend of mine sent me that quote and said, you just hold on to this. You just have to, you know, keep the faith really. And so it, even though it's not, um, it's not a religious book that I wrote, it does talk a lot about keeping your faith in what's real in what's right and in yourself. Well, and certainly those kinds of situations, you, in those kinds of kinds of situations, we often, and it doesn't even take that intense of a situation to create this, but we s- start to question ourselves and we stop trusting ourselves or, or, or tapping into that deeper trust that we all have for ourselves becomes less accessible in the midst of all of the stress. That's exactly right. Especially if you're trying to rely on just your memory alone, because our memories can trick us. Our memories, there have been tons of studies done on this. And I, throughout the past you know, handful of years, as I was navigating this situation, have done a lot of my own research. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in memory, but I'm familiar with the experts <laughs> in memory. And your memories can change 
with what you tell them or what other people suggest. And you're, you can literally believe something is true when it's not. And so that element of trusting yourself can, like you said, can really come into question. And and that's where, especially in a uh, criminal, you know, legal situation, evidence is just, it's so important to believe and then verify. And that's what I was able to do. Um, I mean, I, I knew that I, like I said, I had the truth on my side and I was able to present information uh, to verify that what I was saying was right. Whereas my accuser was not because they were lying <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Uh, and so it is, it can be really challenging to uh, just trust yourself blindly unless you can, you know, sort of back it up in whatever way makes sense to you. But I was fortunate to have, you know, photographs and journal entries and ticket stubs and things of that nature to prove where I was um, and that I wasn't, you know, doing the wrongdoings. And so before we get a little bit more into your story, one of the things I, what I, one of the things I really loved is right at the beginning of your book is, is your transparency in how you had some privilege and resources at your back to support you through this that not that a lot of other people that get in this situation do not have. That is absolutely accurate. <laughs> and uh, and you have this beautiful list of or, organizations that you suggest that people donate to to help those that are in that in that same kind of situation that you were but do not have the same kind of resources. That's right. Because what I quickly learned, and I, I, this is a, a phrase from the book, is that the legal system is part business and part game. I really felt, and I expressed this to my lawyer, and he said, you know, you're not wrong. I said, I really feel like I'm just sort of this collateral damage, like I'm this pawn over here. And you and the district attorneys, the DAs, are in this, or you're engaged in this like mind game, trying to prove to the judge and then ultimately the jury, that you're smarter. You know more about law. It, it Again, like the truth doesn't really seem to matter here. So it kind of boiled down to what can I afford? What kind of experts can I pay to come, you know, testify on my behalf or even not even so much on my behalf as just, you know, I hired one of those very expensive memory experts in the field. Um, and she just came to like lay down the information. She wasn't speaking directly to me or my case, but she was saying memory is way faulty, you know, and, and that helped us. Um, but I had to pay <laughs> for that. And not all my experts, some just get, I paid, you know, the cost of their gas money to get there. And then they didn't charge to actually sit on the stand, but uh, just all of it, paying my bail, paying just all of it. <laughs> it was really expensive. I know people, I have friends who have felony charges on their record simply because they did not have the time or resources to go through the whole rigmarole of trying to clear their name. It's a very slanted system. And there are, fortunately, there are organizations out there who are fighting on behalf of, you know, the, the wrongfully accused, the wrongfully convicted. Um, and, and one of those is they're called Proclaim Justice. They're out of Texas. They're a nonprofit out of Texas. And 5% of my book's proceeds are being donated to Proclaim Justice. I learned about them 
literally about three weeks before my own arrest. I hadn't heard of them before. And they were, I went to a concert. And before the concert began in Texas, the there were screens everywhere that were showing these little clips about what this nonprofit does. And I was so, I was like, this is amazing. How great that they fight for the freedom of people who are wrongfully convicted. I bought a t-shirt, a Proclaim Justice t-shirt at that concert. Not a band t-shirt, but a Proclaim Justice t-shirt. I was just enthralled. And then weeks later, here I was in my own, you know, false accusation situation that had the potential to become a wrongful conviction. And so they, they've, they've sort of become my, my, uh, oh, my, my pet nonprofit <laughs> over the years. They're where I direct my, you know, holiday giving and my Amazon smile charity and things of that nature, because they are doing really good work. And for those of you listening, you can go to proclaimjustice.org if you're interested in donating or finding more out about that amazing organization. So Alex, what were the charges against you? I was accused of sexually mishandling a minor uh, that I was in a position of trust with. So a 16-year-old girl was claiming that I had sexually mishandled her almost 10 years prior. And she, she claimed that she didn't realize it was abuse until she was in high school. And one of her friends shared that they had been abused. And she said something kind of clicked in her head where she said, wait, that happened. That, that happened to me too. But here's the twist is that I had helped to raise that girl and her sister. Uh, As a nanny, I was friends with the parents. My background is in early childhood education. I was their teacher at the first daycare that these children attended um, and became friendly with the parents. They invited me to live with them when I needed a new living situation. So I was literally in the home helping to change diapers and, you know, walk crying babies up and down the hallway and driving the kids to and from school, because that's where I worked, very enmeshed in their life. And I personally was abused by a babysitter when I was a little girl, and I never told my parents. When I grew up, I told a therapist, I started telling close friends, I started to kind of work through it. And my friend, these girls' mother, asked me, to tell her girls about what had happened to me. She said, it freaks me out that you never told your folks, but you have a really good relationship with your folks. And it literally happened right under their noses. They never knew that could be happening to my girls. Will you please tell them what happened to you and reiterate that they can talk to us, they could talk to you, they could talk to an adult if something were happening to them like that. And I had to think about it it was a pretty big request. Um, but ultimately I did it. I talked to the girls. They were seven or eight, nine in that, that uh, age range when I told them about what had happened to me. And uh, I thought it was a good, you know, I felt good about helping in that way because their safety was important to me as well. And I asked them, I said, you know, I, I just, I want you to promise me that if anybody were ever to hurt you like that or try something like that, Will you promise me right here that you'll talk to someone? Oh, yes, they said, we promise. And then six years later, 
I was being arrested for being the babysitter in the story. Girl, my accuser had flipped it somehow along the way in her head. And when her buddy said, oh, I was sexually abused, she said, wait a minute. I know I have something about that in in my memory too. And she called it up in such a way that made her the abused girl and me the abusing babysitter. Even though her younger sister remembered. Didn't something like that happen to Alex too? And then the accuser said, oh, that's right. She still clung to her version that it had happened to her. And as for their mother, she claimed she knew nothing about my abuse. She said she never knew that about me until the girls told her. And she had not certainly not asked me to tell them. But as luck would have it, we had it in writing. She had sent me an instant message years, years ago asking me to tell her kids. So I actually did have it in writing. Wow. Yeah. And... So tell me a little bit about what you know about memory. I mean, I I fully understand memory is a slippery, tricky kind of thing. And we all have a filter where we weave it into our stories. And certainly children have big imag- imaginations. Mm-hmm. And uh, But tell me about how your memory expert supported you and what you know about memory uh, and how this presented. Sure, sure. Um well, as I was, you know, as I said, I knew from the instant that this started to happen that I had to figure out how to show that I was telling the truth. And again, I mean, we can call it luck, we can call it happenstance, whatever. I happen to be a lifelong collector of memories, as it were. I, my husband calls me the recorder of the family. I'm always taking photos, I save the parking, you know, tickets. Well, not parking tickets, but like I say, you know, the tickets where we go anywhere. I have, I had just amassed those kinds of things um, to show, to paint a picture. It helps me remember places I've been, things I've done. And I just, since I've been a child, I've been like that. So I knew that I had, you know, I could jog my own memory by going back through um, these, these pieces, these stories that I'd written in my, you know, in my journal. I'd also kept a blog online for 10 years. So I had things to put my memories back into place for me. Um, And the the memory experts, as I was calling people to tell them, I'm in a situation, I would appreciate support if you're able to give me emotional support, you know, any, anything, whatever, just letting the people in my world know this was happening. My uncle, who's a clinical psychologist in New York, suggested I look up a TED Talk done by Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who is an esteemed professor out of... Uh, in Southern California and has testified at, she's she's in her seventies or eighties at this point and has spent her career um, dedicated to the study of memory. And I looked up her Ted talk and I watched it and I I knew, as I say in the book, I knew after those 17 minutes that I was onto something because she explicitly explains how memories can be planted and she's done it. She's uh, done research or done experiments rather. Um, with people and planted these memories of something slightly traumatic, like getting lost in a busy mall as a child or almost drowning in a, in a pool, things that did not happen to people. But the more they talk about it and said, no, keep thinking, people will start to remember these things happening to them. They'll paint pictures in their head and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I think that you're right. You're right. And they'll come to actually believe that they were lost in a mall as a child. And 
Dr. Loftus speaks explicitly to uh, the legal system and how important it is. She talks a lot about eyewitnesses uh, and how it's important to speak to witnesses quickly and because things can alter and you can literally talk to five different eyewitnesses, people who see it with their own eyes and you can get five different accounts of the order of events, the color of a jacket, the size of a person. Like it's really quite fascinating. Um, and so there is just this notion that, again, you, you believe when someone says something happened, you believe them, but then you have to go through the steps of verifying and uh, relying on memory alone is dangerous. It can lead to people literally spending their lives in prison. The other piece of this I really want to come to, because I know you have a, a like a deep like your fear, I mean, you, I know you have a deep faith around this and like your faith in the universe and your, and a big understanding of, you know, certainly sometimes our soul logic is not our human logic. And that our traumas, you knew that you, like in your book, you talk about how when you moved to, uh, to Colorado, that you, uh, that you knew that there was some deep healing that needed to happen for your own childhood abuse, but you didn't know the hell you were going to have to go through to get there. And so, how our subconscious leverages that, you know, is, uh, you know, more traumatic for some than others, you know, and harder, you know, but um, I'm wonder. I just want your thoughts on kind of like the bigger pattern that was happening with you and, and, uh, yeah, we'll just start there. And then I have a follow-up question after that. Okay. Okay. Sure. Um, well, I can start off the answer by sort of giving a little bit of context just to my own belief system that, you know, my coaching practice is called soul fitness. And I liken the soul to your breath. And there's this idea that we have a physical body and we have a breath that makes it go. And when the breath leaves the body, you know, the physical body ceases to go. It's still here, um, but our breath or our soul is what goes wherever it goes. You know, whatever happens after we cross out of this life, the only thing we take with us is our soul. And I have a belief um, that I've sort of honed over the years that our souls, they come to earth to undertake specific assignments, these challenges that we undergo. And we forget once we become a physical form here on earth, we forget what these are and, but they're coming to us. And so there were, there are always things to learn from the challenges. We signed up for them in a very, uh, you know, meta kind of way. And it's, the point isn't to avoid the challenges while we're on earth. It's to learn how to navigate them you know, so that we do, so that we, they're not in vain. Um, and so having this understanding when I first moved to Colorado, that moment in that car, like I didn't move to Colorado so that I could heal my, you know, inner child and, and rise from the abuse side. I, at that point, I was still real good with just like stuffing it down in the corner. Um, but there was just, there's just no denying in that moment. And I didn't speak it out loud. I didn't, you know, I was in the car with my sister when it happened. It was the line of a song that sort of just like struck through everything about the moment. And it's all I could hear. And the line was, I will wait for you. And I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, it was that little 
girl inside of me who had been, I mean, abandoned, quite frankly, she'd been hurt when she was little. And then I certainly had never come to her rescue. I had been stuffing her in a corner. <laughs> like You need to go. Shh. Um, so I didn't give anybody else the opportunity to help her either. And it was just this reminder, like, hey, I'm still here and it's cool. Take as long as you need, but I'm not going anywhere. And, uh, and so one of my soul's lessons, it turns out, was about healing that what happened to me as a very small child, I was like maybe four, three, four, five years old when my abuse happened, like very young. And by the time I'd put together in an intellectual sense, like what that had been, it was long over. Uh, The babysitter was long gone from our lives. And I didn't see a point. I didn't value my own self. I didn't know to value my own self enough to say there's something that needs to be, you know, teased out here, pulled apart here. Um, And it became a deep source of shame. So I I don't think that there are, you know, I kind of used the word coincidences before, but I don't, really believe that. I think it all, and it, I think it all happens on purpose. Um, I think, you know, we def, as human beings, we have free will. So we're not being, nothing forced me to move to Colorado and nothing forced me to get the job at that school or move in with that family or, you know, fall in love with those kids. I just, I, I did, I love them with my whole being. Um, I made those choices but it was, it was like somewhere along the way, I'm going to make choices and, and opportunities for this healing are going to present themselves. And as I mentioned, I'd been in therapy um, on and off for you know, a number of years, but it's like, it, but I never told my parents. I didn't tell my parents about my abuse until after I'd been arrested. That's when they learned. So they had, I handed them a gigantic, you know, part of my language, shit sandwich. spent the weekend in jail. Oh yeah. And I was abused as a child. How are you guys? Um, So I had opportunity to, you know, I don't know, to talk about it with them, to clear that air, to offer them healing from that too. I didn't realize that that would be something they would need. Um, And I never took it. And so it was like the universe decided that bigger and more drastic steps were needed for me to wake up and uh, address it. And other things besides too, right? Like my own healing, but also like my own shade and the own ways that I wasn't, didn't always tell the truth or kind of acted in questionable ways or decisions I made. Like it really helped me clear out a lot of those cobwebs. As I'm writing my book right now, I'm contextualizing it around the Egyptian myth of Isis and Osiris. So that's part of my lens. And in that story, Osiris was killed twice by his brother, And his wife, Isis, put him back together after both times. The second time, he got chopped into pieces. And I talk a lot about how we use dismemberment metaphors in our language all the time that we say we're falling apart, we can't get it together, our lives are shattered, our hearts are broken. And whereas when when I imagine being in that story, I imagine that most everybody out of outside of Set's inner circle, you know, his outside of his brother's inner circle that was trying to sabotage Osiris, that everybody thought he was, his destiny was to be the king of Egypt. But his true destiny was to be the king of the underworld, which for the Egyptians was where all life came from and all treasures were found. And he literally had to come apart to come back together in that new way. And I would love to know, I mean, certainly this best-selling book has been one of the amazing doors that has opened in an amazing new way that things have come together for you. I would love to know what is, what's on the other side? What has, what, what part of your destiny did, were you maybe in hindsight resisting or that you've, you know, uh, what destiny 
has has changed for you? I love this question. Um, it, it really has most to do so far. It has most to do with the book. I have been talking about writing a book, Melanie, for, I mean, the better part of 20 years. I love to write. I, you know, like I said, I had a blog for over 10 years and it was just like personal accounts of things I was up to. Um, And some of it was just drivel, like what I watched on TV or ate for dinner. But oftentimes there were deep dives into my philosophies or my thoughts on life or my takes on, you know, why we're alive or things of that nature. And I've been told over the years, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. And I've traveled quite a bit. I've lived in a bunch of different places. And uh, it took me a good long time to find the love of my life. And I thought for a while, this is what my book's going to be about the journey I've been on and, you know, the, the learning I've done and finding my way to James. And then I had a a falling out, the falling out with this family, my accusers family um, that was not tied to this situation. I had hadn't talked to them in three years when the police showed up at my door. So I had the, and I said, had this falling out and I said, you know, I'm going to write this book and I'm not even going to include them in it, even though they'd been instrumental in my life throughout the years. I said, because that's, you know, that they walked away and they, they did me wrong here and there and wherever. And then this happened. And I said, Oh, Oh, they are the book. (laughs) And it's like, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have, this is the story I, I believe that I was, you know, made to tell. There's, um, there's that saying that says you've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. And that was another like truth that I embedded during this whole thing was that there's, this is an experience that I need uh, to, again, like I said, clear out some of the cobwebs and just the decisions I make and the friendships I keep. That has been a big switch as well. Um, It's like the way I was a friend before this, and now the way I'll be a friend, I am a friend and will be a friend because of this. This was a tired relationship. It was a little bit toxic. There was a little bit of frenemy happening um, throughout it. And I recognized that. And I didn't honor myself or the other person by, you know, ending the friendship or distancing from the friendship. And that's a real thing. Like friendship breakups are a necessary part of life. Um, And I looked at it as a fault versus a growth and, uh, you know, a period of growth and development. And so that has shifted. Like what I accept and what I give to, you know, from and to friendships um, has gotten much stronger in quality. And then again, having this story to write, this story wanted to be told. It helped me grow as a person, the experience, and it provided what I'm told is a captivating, you know, thought-provoking read. Um, people are taking notes from this book. People are going back and underlining things. They're looking up concepts. They're applying things that I talk about helping me in this, you know, drastic situation and distilling it and saying, this could even just help me with that, you know, squabble at work or the, you know, tough neighbor or whatever. Like they're, um, they're able to be applied in a lot of different ways. And so I, I, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, there are a lot of levels to how this situation has helped me become who I'm, I believe meant to be and help who I believe I'm meant to help and uh, deliver the message that I didn't realize I was the messenger for. (laughs) 
Well, I love that. And, the, you know, a book certainly has that ability to reach so many more people than you ever can face to face. One of the things that I really love about your perspective, and I share much of your of the same belief system that you do, but I really love how you have owned this situation as yours and as you know, part of this bigger healing process that you're going through. Did you have that same kind of ownership as you were going through it? I will, you know, I realized pretty quickly that, I mean, obviously everything that was on the table had to do with being honest. And I recognized um, that if I wasn't being honest with myself, what's the point? <laughs> like, what? why would I fight for, you know, the truth is so important and not be applying the truth carte blanche. Um, and so part of that did come down to what do I need to take ownership for? And a lot of it tied into my desire uh, for forgiveness, both forgiving my own self for, you know, not always being a really stellar, high, highly moral kind of person. Like my upbringing, I made a lot of questionable choices. Um, and then forgiving others for this sort, this, especially in this situation, uh, really having to work at that. Um, but recognizing that if I was going to continue to issue anger out and shade and wish ill, that was the exact energy that was going to come find its way back to me. And so that had been taking ownership that that had been the way I had proceeded. Um, you know, even like I just said about, I'm going to write a book and leave them out of it. Like that was me like being a jerk, quite frankly, not that it's not human to do that. Like there's, it, there's, I wasn't wrong. It was just a choice I was making that was creating more of the same in my life and being able to take a hard look at myself and say, what are you putting out and where are you issuing it? That's making the lesson need to be this heavy. <laughs> it, you know, why? What are you resisting? Well, and I do you feel like the amount of ownership you took of the situation helped you with the creation of making the situation dissolve, of being vindicated, of being uh, you know, set free of the charges? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, I knew that what was being issued to me, like what was on paper. I knew that was not like that was almost like that was nothing to me because that was so false. That was such a blatant falsehood that there was nothing there for me to like find purchase with insofar as what kind of lesson lesson do I need to learn or what kind of, you know, wrong do I need to write or attitude do I need to shift? The stuff on paper, these accusations were, they're just, I couldn't, uh, that's why I didn't take a plea deal. They kept offering me plea deals and I kept saying, but, but I didn't do anything <laughs> like this. My lawyer was like, this is amazing. And I was like, not if you didn't do anything, um, because they all would have included like sex offender therapy. And I was like, I don't, I don't need that. That will be, that's just not, I won't accept that. And yet here I was tightly ensconced in this legal battle. Again, I had to like almost figure out what are the parameters of this. It was a spiritual, I was told early on from a, a, my spiritual guide or mentor, she said, make no mistake, this is spiritual warfare. You are being spiritually attacked and will continue to be. And so I knew that even though it was happening on the physical level for everybody to see, and my mugshot was all over the news, and there were letters sent out, you know, to 
the parent bodies of every school I'd ever worked at. Um, so there was a real awareness on a physical level. My work was like more of a spiritual nature. And it, again, it was like having to get right with things that only I knew. <laughs> like it, 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 I wasn't going to get up on stand and be like, well, let me talk about the shadow work I've done. Cause that right. was the issue at hand. <laughs> right. And yet that's what I had to do. So I started pulling apart every wrong I could remember from a kindergarten on, right? Like I just spent a lot of time going over my own BS <laughs> and, and trying to make amends um, just within my own spirit, like in all directions of time and space, right? Like really trying sure. to, again, forgive myself, forgive others, forgive right. circumstances um, and hope that the effort there would somehow trickle through to this game that I was upon in. Well, and that's really what I, what I, what I would love for the listeners to connect, that that is really the power of digging into your own BS mm-hmm. and watching the world around you then start to shift. I Years ago, I had a professional lawsuit against me and I had a very similar approach. Like I couldn't control what she was doing. I had documentation to say that what she was saying did not happen. And I passed it off to the lawyer and just worked on myself. And when I really came to that place of forgiveness and and compassion and really my own self-compassion for, I would say coming to that point was really the, you know, perhaps the biggest piece of it. Um, ultimately, the lawsuit got dropped. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, kind of like, I really feel like it was that because I was able to evolve and change and like you were able to evolve and change and un do and rewire yourself that then the situation around you responds to that. Yeah. And I think a lot of, in in my case anyway, that sticking by myself and standing up for myself and knowing I was right. My mom gave me a really strong piece of advice during it. And she said, honey, as long as you can look yourself in the eye, that's the, you know, then that's the decision you need to make. Um, and again, just saying no, I think it was like six or seven plea deals that came my way and they kept getting lesser and lesser in like their intensity. And yet I I wanted nothing to do with any of them. I said, no, I will take this to a trial. And if a jury of my peers can sit and listen to all of this and then conclude that there's no reasonable doubt here, then that's, that's my soul's destiny. I can write a book in prison, but I will not admit Like I I just, I got to a place where I did honor myself and I did respect myself and I loved myself too much to bend over basically for that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so they, and they, it was, they decided I had a, you know, not to give away the whole thing, but I decided I had a hung jury. I was not guilty on two charges and I had a hung jury on five and they decided to retry the five. And so I had another six months of preparation and another like, oh my God, okay, we're doing this again with a new jury. Okay. Okay. And that's the, those are the six months that they actually did an investigation. They had never done an investigation. And once they did their investigation, they dropped all the charges because there wasn't enough to go to trial. So had I just been had I acted out of that fear, which there was plenty of fear, I am not saying I coasted through this being like, no, no, I'm just going to keep the faith. I was terrified. I've never known that depth of fear. But what I reminded myself in that moment 
was because I'm now touching deeper amounts of fear than I've ever known before, the pendulum always swings. And therefore, if I just can hold on, I will soon know levels of love and joy and, you know, freedom like I've never known before. And so the promise, right, holding on to the promise that I am so low that the other side is inevitable and uh, and just sitting with the fear, not trying to run away from it. I mean, I had a lot of like, you know, come to Jesus moments where I was like, oh my God, my parents can't fix this. Like there, you know, there's nobody to call and be like, could you make a phone call? You know, there was just, it wasn't, <laughs> none of that was even on the table. It was like, you just, you, I have to sit with this. I have to feel it. And I can only, I need to take what's the next best step. And that's what I kept doing. Well, I am so glad that you kept taking the next best step, Alex, and there's so much wisdom in all of your words today. Thank you so much for being here for this conversation. Tell everybody how they can get in touch with you. Oh, happily. I have a website. It's www.goaskalex.org. I am on uh, Instagram at Soul Fitness Coaching and Facebook at Soul Fitness Coaching. So those are the best ways to uh, to find me. Great. And you do, and you offer, what services are you offering? I currently offer one-on-one coaching. Um, and I'm also now that the book is out doing more speaking uh, to larger groups on the same principles that I again, have been using to coach other uh, people and my very own self. (laughs) Excellent. And I will put those links in the show notes. Thank you, Alex, so much for being here. And thank thank you you all. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Presence podcast. Text FEARLESS to 411321 to take your first step into Fearless Presence. For international numbers and more information, including my free playbook, Six Steps to Fearless Presence, go to fearlesspresence.com. Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and information to help you step into your fearless presence.